Good morning, Christ Central. My name is Sam, and I'll be reading today's scripture, which comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. Now may I have your full attention for the reading of God's holy word. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. This is the reading of God's word, and now comes the preaching of God's word. Thanks, Sam. Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Jimmy. For those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. It's my honor to bring you God's word today. I don't know if many of you know, but this coming January will mark the beginning of my 35th year in ministry. 35 years. I think about that sometimes, and I'm just like, wow, only by the grace of God. And during these many years, uh, the Lord has blessed me and the, to have the privilege to be a part of his church and ministry throughout these years. And I have to admit, I've seen some ugly, some good, some beautiful, uh, some bad and these I have seen both here as well as abroad. I've had the privilege to visit many countries through summer missions uh, with campus ministry as well as with the local church. And like many of you, there are things that I love about the church and there are things that I wish didn't exist in the church or its history. Recently, uh, many of us have heard within the Christian community of Christian leaders who have stepped away from their ministry due to sin, uh, perhaps a struggle with faith, or simply due to the stress and fatigue of ministry throughout the years. We've also heard of the abuse of power, and therefore the trail of pain and disappointment that Christian leadership sometimes leave. There's no defense for sin in ministry or anywhere else. But by the grace of God and his spirit, he still uses redeemed people to do the extraordinary work of proclaiming the gospel. Today in our passage, the Apostle Paul defends his own ministry to a church who questioned his authority and the legitimacy of his ministry. The context of 2 Corinthians chapter 10 changes the tone from some encouraging and helpful words, uh, uplifting and encouraging words, to a tone that seems to be a little bit harsher and perhaps some sense of boldness and defense of ministry. Paul was facing a strong opposition and the opponents were Christ Jewish Christians who put themselves forward as apostles of Christ. These opponents prized uh, eloquent speech, displays of authority, uh, visions and revelations, as well as the performance of mighty works as signs of true apostles. These displays were impressive, but they did not always define those sent by God. For example, even eloquence of which Paul was accused of not having. And yet their influence was felt within the Corinthian church, which brought about some of the questions of Paul's own ministry. Paul responds in chapter 10 with both humility and boasting. The question the Corinthians had, perhaps to some, may seem like a fair question. 
Why, if Paul, if a true apostle, did he seem so weak when he is present with us and yet so bold and courageous when he was away, especially through his letters? Paul responds in verse 1 by saying, I entreat you, I plead with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul's response was one that reminded the Corinthians that even Jesus Christ came in meekness and gentleness, and yet he was courageous and strong. And he's therefore saying, and I follow him. Paul didn't want to display his authority and boldness, but he said if he must, he will. What Paul is basically saying in his defense is that I may be unimpressive to you in person, but I can be forceful as my letters show. I hope I don't have to. And I hope that when I see you again, it doesn't have to be that way. Paul was the first to refer to himself in 1 Timothy as the foremost of sinners. He needed no one to put him down or remind him of his sinfulness. And yet Paul was also unashamedly willing to boast as well. And yet his boasting was not about himself, it was about the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of this chapter, he says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so how can a man be humble and yet boast at the same time? This may seem like a contradiction, but this is the paradox of this chapter. And for a reminder for those of you, uh, as we call our series Paradox, a paradox is something that may seem like a contradiction at first appearance, but it's not. When you think about it, it actually can be true. And today I want to share with you the paradox of both humility and boasting. It is a ministry, it, every ministry, whether it's mine, this church, or yours, and by the way, you have a ministry as well. By your gifting and calling to be Christians, you too have a ministry. And the paradox, and uh, I want to encapsulate in two thoughts. First, no reason to boast, yet boasting. And secondly, mere words, yet divine weapons of war. These are the two paradoxes we find in this text. And I want to begin with the first one. The re no reason to boast, yet boasting. In the first couple of verses, the Apostle Paul admits that he was humble when face to face, yet bold when he was away. And, the re and, and what he's appealing to here is a response, like I said, to the Corinthian church, who in verse 10 wrote that he's, he himself writes of their complaint. They say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. For those of us who've read the letters of Paul, the epistles that he's written to the churches, even the pastoral epistles to Timothy and to Titus. We read these letters and we're so impressed with the doctrine, the teaching, that we would think that this man also might have been a powerful speaker. But according to this Corinthian letter, he wasn't. He wasn't very eloquent. In fact, his presence, his physical stature perhaps wasn't even very impressive as well. And so here, as we look at this text, um, there are some things that we often confuse. First, one of the things that people often confuse is gentleness with weakness. You know, my kids sometimes confuse a fatherly gentleness, uh, a, a gentle voice and a rebuke with something that they felt like, oh, he's speaking softly, so I'm going to talk back. And I have to remind them very quickly, oh, no. <laughs> Do not think and do not mistake my kindness with weakness. And I have to be bold with him. And here, the Apostle Paul, perhaps, in a sense, 
might have seemed like a coward, scared to confront these people when he was present with them. But all of a sudden, when he's away, he seems to write strong and bold words in his letters. And so here he reminds them of what gentleness is, that just like Christ, he too comes with this gentleness and meekness. And by the way, gentleness, if you want to understand it, though by definition it is kind and tender, mild-mannered, I want us to uh, understand what it is. Uh, One pastor painted a beautiful picture. He said, imagine a football player holding a baby. That's gentleness. It's power under control. What Paul was pleading to was the fact that even Jesus, who was meek and gentle, we would never say that he was weak. The other confusion that they had was they confused the package with the product. Perhaps Paul didn't look very impressive. He didn't sound very impressive. And yet, what he beheld and what he brought was quite impressive. What he boasted of, he spoke powerfully. You know, just a few weeks ago, we had the privilege of witnessing the pastoral ordination of Daniel T. Kim. He woke up on October 14th as our youth director. October 15th, on Sunday, he became Reverend Daniel T. Kim. What changed? Was he all of a sudden transformed from just a Christian to the Reverend Daniel Kim? I assure you that when Pastor Daniel woke up on October 16th, he didn't feel any different than on the 14th or the 15th. And yet what happened was that the local church and the denomination that we belong to as a church had taken several steps to affirm his calling and qualifications to be a minister of the gospel, to preach the word, to administer the sacraments, and to even do what we call a benediction, a prayer of blessing upon God's people as they leave the place of worship. And I want you to understand that though this this is something for us here at Christ Central we're used to seeing on a regular basis, that if you pause and think for a moment, I mean, who dares to say, thus says the Lord, to offer a holy sacrament instituted by Jesus himself to take the bread and the wine and tell God's people this represents the gospel of Christ's body and blood given for us. And then to dare to say, to stand up and say to God's people, receive now God's blessing. (laughs) I want to tell you, uh, my very first benediction I gave at my ordination, I was sweating, I was so scared. Because it was this awareness that, sh- uh, that shook me to the core. It is this that pastors, elders, in fact, ordained office leaders in the church can be seen as a paradox of mere men and women who have been called to teach and lead others in the name of our risen Lord. I want to begin by acknowledging the fact that there are many who have been hurt by church leaders. And they, and they have been hurt either by neglect abuse, hurtful words, and even hurtful behavior. And I'm sure there are times when I too myself have hurt others with my words, with my attitude. And I have to remind myself also that one of the people who, are, who have always been in my ordained ministry has been my wife, Jennifer. And there are many times when I've hurt her, many times when I've hurt my own kids with my words and hypocritical actions. The reality is that ministries are led by redeemed sinners. Lambs called to be shepherds, 
not to excuse the weaknesses and the failures, but also to give perspective to the many challenges that face those in leadership positions. Take, for example, the ministry of preaching the Word of God. We're mere men holding up the divinely inspired Word of God. Our task is to present God's Word as clearly and as accurately as possible through study, prayer, and preparation. Call to this daunting task is the imperfect work-in-progress call the Christian pastor. Our hope is to remain humble and self-aware, aware of our own sinfulness and tendencies, our habits, that many, many of you will not see because you don't live with me, but also to remain bold and when standing to speak and teach God's word to his people or to even people who have yet to hear the gospel for the first time. It is a lamb speaking with the echoing voice of his shepherd, hopefully. And on his behalf, we dare to say, this is the word of God. It is both highly intimidating and also a high privilege. It is a paradox of weakness and strength. The weakness is mine, and the strength is the Lord's. And yet, this is not just true for Christian leadership. It's true for all of us, for you and I. In 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter reminds us in chapter 2 that we are a priesthood of believers. The entire church, the body of Christ, are called priests. We are called to be witnesses to a world, to raise up disciples as we go and live our lives. We are called to be this walking paradox of humble boasting. The weakness and strength walking side by side. The humanity speaking of the gospel that has been given by God himself. Each of us has been entrusted with a ministry. Each of us have spiritual gifts that we received upon our salvation. And yet, as we have secured our faith in Christ and our eternal destination with God in glory in Jesus Christ our Lord, the question is, why are we still here? There are a lot of people who think that the main point of the gospel is to save me. And if you are saved and you are going to be in heaven with God forever, why are we still here? We are still here because we still have a task to do in the name of our Lord. What has changed upon your confession of faith is not only your eternal destination, but your identity and even your life goal and ministry. There's some passages that have impacted my life and continues to remind me not only of who I am, but eventually what I am called to do. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Pastor Harold spoke on this chapter last week. We're reminded that therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A new creation. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This passage reminds me that something died when I met Jesus. And now some, someone else lives in me and through me. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This is Paul's own words in 2 Corinthians. That we hold this treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the person of God's spirit who dwells with us now. 
that who empowers us to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. We are called to make disciples of all nations. And the very nation as well that which we live. More specifically, we are called to be Christians and to make disciples here in Southern California. Of which our church is named after. To make Christ central of Southern California. Well, not only do we see that in our name as a church, reminding us constantly when we talk about our church, but also that we are called to follow in the footsteps of Christ. I'm always encouraged by what Paul wrote in chapter 2 of Philippians, where he speaks about Jesus. And in verses 6 to 8, he writes, Who though he was in the form, the essence of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We are called to be imitators of Christ. And as Christians, whatever we were, whatever we used to live for, whatever was our previous Identity, our values, our purpose and dreams in life, they all died when we met Jesus and decided to follow him. And what was rebirthed in its place was his heart, his love, and his mission. So whatever you do in your life and in my life, it is a ministry of Jesus Christ. Whether it's your workplace, your home, your neighborhood community, or here even at church. The paradox continues, however, that this same person who struggles with sin, the scripture also says, has been set free from sin. How can you struggle with sin and yet be set free? It's a, it's, it's, it's a paradox. It's, a, it's true. We're free because we're no longer bound and slaves to sin. But every time we sin, we struggle with it, displaying our freedom. No longer seeing it as a way of life and identity, but now we see that we are called to be holy and Christ-like. And now sin no longer is comfortable. It actually brings our heart and soul sorrow. Sin is no longer our master. Sin is no longer the identifying essence of who we are. And yet we struggle in it daily. Nonetheless, we are a new creation. And the one who governs our life has changed. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. We're no longer enemies of God. We're now called children of God. And in fact, we even have access to the very throne room of God. But if I may, I want to return to the task of this ordained ministry. We often struggle with our humanity and sinful tendencies, just like everyone else. The reality is that if you knew me truly and intimately as God knows me, as Jennifer Hahn knows me, you probably wouldn't call me reverend and you definitely wouldn't call me pastor. I don't even know if you would call me friend. Because there are aspects of who I am in my own sinfulness that I struggle with on a daily basis that God knows. And the reason why I'm so amazed at the love and grace of God is because he knows all of that and he still loves me. And even my wife, she knows all of that and she's still with me. It is the odd struggle with our faltered humanity and yet the undeniable need and unction 
to proclaim Christ. One of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozer, on the day of his ordination, at the young age of 23 years old, he wrote a prayer prior to his own ordination. It is a powerful prayer that I read the night before my ordination, remembering again not only a high calling, but the weakness of my own humanity. And this is how his prayer ends. He writes, Though I am chosen of you and honored by a high and holy calling, let me never forget that I am a man of dust and ashes, a man with all the natural faults and passions that plague the race of men. I pray you, therefore, my Lord and Redeemer, save me from myself and from all the injuries I may do myself while trying to be a blessing to others. Fill me with your power by the Holy Spirit, and I will go in your strength and tell of your righteousness, even yours only. I will spread abroad the message of redeeming love while my normal powers endure. Then, dear Lord, when I am old and weary and too tired to go on, have a place ready for me above, and make me to be numbered with your saints in glory everlasting. Amen. Can I tell you there are many days when I ask myself, who do you think you are? To stand there and say, thus says the Lord. There are many days in my marriage and my ministry, even prior to coming to Christ Central, where there was someone who was sitting in the front row to the left named Jennifer Hahn, with whom I would have an intense argument the night before the morning of. And then I would have to stand up and to speak about the gospel of God's grace and love. And whether she meant it or not, sometimes her look would be so piercing I couldn't look at her. <laughs> And I would try to avoid eye contact, because if I did, I would just probably have to stop and say, I'm sorry, <laughs> and apologize to her on the spot. No one who stands at the pulpit to preach, to pray, to lead communion, or to give a benediction are ever worthy of such a calling. All of us are undeserving, and only by the grace of God do we even dare to stand before God's people and say such things. Some of us break this trust, some irreparably, and yet we must continue our ministry, and so must you. I know there are some of you right now who think, I could never speak about Jesus at my workplace. I can't talk about Jesus to my family members or to my friends because they know who I am. And I want you to understand, the gospel is never, look at how righteous I am. It's the gospel is, look at how righteous Jesus is. And if, you, and if the place begins with, yes, I am a faltered human being, and that is why I need Jesus. That is why I need the gospel. That is why I come before you, not pleading on my strength or my abilities or my credentials, but his alone. And I want to encourage you that your ministry does not need to be impeded because of your humanity or your weakness, because none of us are able to say and speak on behalf of our Lord by our own abilities and merit. We need grace. We need accountability. We need support. And we can't do it without Jesus. And so the first paradox that this passage speaks of is that we who have no reason to boast, yet we are boasting of Jesus in the gospel. The second paradox is mere words yet divine weapons of war. 
In verses 3 to 6, the Apostle Paul speaks about the fact that we walk in the flesh. We are human beings, and yet we are not waging war according to the flesh. What Paul is appealing to is the divine authority by which he did his ministry. Even though he looked kind of like a normal human being, even though his speech was unimpressive and his stature was unimpressive, he reminded the Corinthian church that when we speak, it's not just mere human words. They are divine weapons of war. He says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and to take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. He again reasserts his authority, not the authority that is his own, the authority given to him by God himself, Christ himself. What Paul was talking about here is the seeming paradox of the words of mere mortal men and somehow they become in the heavenly realm They possess the power to destroy the work of an unseen enemy and to set captives free. In your years of reading, education, listening to music, watching movies, I'm sure there have been many times when you have read something, listened to something, watched something where you were deeply, profoundly affected. Whether it was a movie, a song, a poem, a quote, you would read it and be captured by its wisdom and its power. You probably wrote it down somewhere, but I assure you, you probably also forgot about it. May I proclaim to you that of all the things that have deeply resonated in my heart and soul before, in my mind as well, nothing holds the power to keep me grounded and reminded of who God is than the word of God. The word of God alone has the power to heal, to restore, to bring life from death. And these words that seem like book, words in a book, like any other book, are, is different. It cannot be contained by book. It can be in digital form. It can be memorized. It can be in the hearts of, of God's people. And it continues to have the power to bring transformation And life from death. I want to remind us that the ultimate war has already been won. Jesus Christ our Lord has won the victory for us on the cross at Calvary. And when we think of war, we often think of, even as we hear of the wars going on around the world and especially in the Middle East, you think of things like guns and tanks and bombs and all the different military forces that are at play. And what Paul uses here is a military term, that our weapons are weapons of spiritual warfare. They have power to break strongholds. The soul has a stronghold of its thoughts about God or not God, about life and who they are. And the gospel comes and by the power of God's spirit penetrates and breaks that stronghold and sets captives free. Our our unconventional weapon is the word of God. And although some people think that human eloquence, the power of persuasion, the art of speech and debate are good, and they are good, and they can be useful in certain ways, but they do not in and of themselves possess the power to set people free. It is only found in the weapons, the divine weapons that God has set up. It is the doctrine of the gospel. That we, as human beings have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
that we are saved only by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That no one has any reason to boast in and of themselves. It is Christ who made us sufficient and paid the price of our own penalty and sin. That on the third day, Christ rose again from the grave. That his resurrection affirms the victory over sin and death, not just of Christ, but all of those who are in Christ. And I want you to pause, and if you ever get a chance, take a long period of time to just ponder and think about the fact that if this is true, and it is true, that the way that we see people, the way we see ourselves, that we have to assess them and, and, and come to conclusions that are defined not by my feelings and self-perception, but by the word of God. The word of God says we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means no matter what I do, no matter what I desire for the rest of eternity, I could never ever merit the, a complete forgiveness of God for my sin. Only God's solution of Jesus Christ by his grace and my trust in him will ever merit forgiveness and salvation. And the fact that he rose again on the third day, there's no other human being that came back to life and still lives. When I was in Kenya many years ago, I ran across a, a, a Muslim friend who gave me a book called The 50 Errors of the Christian Bible. And it was his way to love and evangelize to me as a Christian about the error of my faith. And I was, as I was reading through one of them, one of them was about the resurrection. And the apologetic that he had in this book said that Jesus rose again after three days, but Lazarus rose again after four days. So that means Lazarus' resurrection is more powerful than Jesus's. And I sat there and I said, my dear friend, that may be true. Lazarus might have resurrected one more day later than Jesus, but Lazarus died again. Jesus didn't. Boom, mic drop. I lost the argument. I won the argument and I lost the soul. I was an arrogant seminarian and I was glad to give it to him. The third day resurrection. You and I hold a message. The world has never heard in comparison. No world religion claims what Christianity claims. No other world leader, world leader in religious communities has ever done what Jesus did. Come back to life, lives forever, and will return as the reigning king of kings and lord of lords. Only God's word, this unconventional weapon of war, has the power to set free those in bondage to sin and death. And I want us to be assured that God's word, when it is sent forth, never returns empty. There is a confidence that I want us to have in the word of God. That God reminds us in the book of uh, in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. He writes, he says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to either eater, so shall my word, 
be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. What, this word reminds us that as God's word is shared and proclaimed, even in the frail vessels of, of jars of clay that it's presented in, it will not return to him empty. It will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. And I want you to understand that when you share the word of God, you may not see it with your own eyes or see it in your lifetime. But God will carry out his purpose for which that word was sent and spoken. I reminded our education staff, our teachers for elementary and youth this morning. What you do is no small task. That when you share the word of God to these kids who seem like they're not listening, God's word will accomplish the purpose for which he sent it. And though we are called to proclaim the word of God faithfully, whether as an ordained minister or as a Christian out in the workforce, as missionaries to the place where God has sent you, I want you to know that God will continue to work his good work in your home as you read it to your children, as you read it with your spouse, as you read it with friends, as you speak about it and think about it and pray over it, memorize it, study it, and share it. I hope that you know that God promises that his word, as it goes into your heart, as it goes into your home, as it goes into your community, as you share it with a friend, it will not return to him empty. And though we do this, May I also admit there are times when we seek for human approval. The weakness of a lot of pastors is that after we pour out our heart and leave it open for people to assess, to bless, or to criticize, um, at times we are looking for responses, you know? And after a Sunday message, I'd be driving home with my wife, and I'd ask Jen, I'd say, so what do you think about the message? And she, sometimes she would say, oh, it was okay, it was good. Or sometimes she would say, I didn't know what you were saying. And I'm like, what? And I remember one time I was speaking at the youth, and I, I gave it my best, you know? And I came down, and I, was look, I looked at my daughter, and, and, and I was looking for some response, and she said, uh, Dad, your message was too long. And then she walked away. And I was like, <laughs> You really know how to hurt a guy. And then I had to remind, remind myself. Every time I go home on a Sunday after a message, I say, Lord, whether I hear good things or bad things or nothing, I'm glad and have the privilege to have spoken on your behalf. I hope I did it well. All of your pastors struggle with human approval because we're human beings. And I love this part of A.W. Tozer's prayer for protection of his heart from the need of human affirmation. He writes, let me never become a slave to crowds. Heal my soul of carnal ambition and deliver me from the itch for publicity. Save me from the bondage to things. Let me not waste my days puttering around the house. Lay your terror upon me, O God, and drive me to the place of prayer where I may wrestle with principalities, powers, and rulers of the darkness of this world. And I want to say to you that every time that we stand here to talk about God's word and preach and to worship, that things are happening in human souls every week. 
God will bring a fruitfulness through this weapon of war. And so I plead with you for your prayers, for your grace, and for your encouragement. So then what can we do as to remain faithful to our Lord? Paul writes in this section of passages to take every thought captive to obey Christ. To obey Christ is a response to the gospel. It is not a requirement of salvation. The gospel reminds us that it is not by works so that anyone can boast. It is not acts that we take. It will never merit the the grace and forgiveness and salvation of God. And yet our response to the gospel is obedience. It is an act of following and trusting the one we claim as our Lord and Redeemer. And if we are to obey, we must first know what he commanded. You can't obey something you don't know what was commanded. And so we must be in his word and know his word. And obedience requires a daily surrender. The word here that talks about this, this, this parallel is the captive to obey Christ. To take our thought captive. It is a military term. And this military term, if you can understand it, what captive requires is surrender. Every day, your will, your desire, and your, your longings can sometimes be at odds with the will of God and his word. And when those things are in conflict, only one will win. And this is when we surrender our desire and our will and our passions to God's truth. Obedience is a daily surrender. It's simple. This is what it says. So do it. But it's so difficult. It's difficult because there's so many times when I don't want what God wants. And I don't want to do what God's word says. When someone, when someone is mistreating me, I don't want to forgive them. But God says not only to forgive, but to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Disobedience happens when we forget by what grace and love we have been saved. And when we return to the reality and awareness that this undeserving sinner was saved by this love and this grace, then we return to surrender again and again. Obedience is not an act of duty. It is a response of love. In John 14, 15, Jesus simply said to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, not If you are a faithful soldier, keep your duty and keep my commandments. No. He says, if you love me. This love for Jesus is developed through time spent with him in his presence. One of the dangers in today's culture for children, youth, and adults alike is that we spend way too much time listening to everyone but Jesus. And when we don't have time in the presence of God and his word and in prayer, we will be susceptible to the enemy's attack. Our minds will not be taken captive to obedience because our minds are already taken captive to someone else's thoughts and words. And daily it is a surrender to God to say, God, I need you. I must focus on you and I need to do this because my soul has easily a tendency to wander. And so as your pastor, I want to remind you of a few things this morning in practical application. 
First, spend daily time in God's word. There is a study that shows that if a person is in the word of God at least four times in a week, there seems to be trends of change that seem to be very different. I don't know why the study says this, but what's interesting is that it's not just once in a while. It is a necessary, consistent, and I would encourage daily. Secondly, to pray and seek his face daily with praise, requests, and thanksgiving. You know, when people say, do you have any prayer requests? The first thing we think about is request. And we're thinking about urgent things that we think. Is there anything urgent that I need intercession for? But if you don't have anything urgent to intercede for, we often say, well, no, not today. I want to encourage you to include praise and thanksgiving as a part of your requests. That as you spend time in prayer, praise him, thank him. Because thanking him reminds you that you are not lacking. All that you need, God has sufficiently given to you. And therefore, you can thank him even in the midst of difficult days, even loss. You don't thank him for pain. That would be cruel. You thank him that even in the midst of pain, he is with you. And his promises never change. Thirdly, worship regularly, weekly to remind your soul that there's only one true God and all other gods are false. Because throughout the week, there will be nights when you can't fall asleep because an idol has gripped your heart. It means so much to you, you can't sleep. And the only reason why you can sleep on a regular basis and get true rest is because your soul remembers that is not God. There's only one God, one Father, one, one Son, and one Holy Spirit that this triune God is my God. And worshiping Him, my soul needs to remember on a regular rhythm basis of who is God and what is not. And fourthly, serve others as Christ came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ came not to be served, but to serve. And every time you serve your family, every time you serve your community, every time you serve someone you don't know, you're reminded that the old is gone, The new has come. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the treasure I hold, it is in this jar of clay. And in the end, the paradox of humanity and divinity was seen most beautifully and perfectly expressed in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. If I may read to you Philippians 2 once again, now including the second part of it as well. It says, have this mind, this attitude in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being in in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I know that there are some of us who feel like maybe all God does is just demand and want things from me. No. Verse 9 that follows says, Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All things work for his glory. And in one of the things that you and I will know for sure once one final future day is that your life, your service, your servanthood was never wasted. It brought glory to God. And it brings us joy and honor to follow in his steps. This is our ministry of humble boasting. Let's pray. As our worship team makes their way up, I want to invite you to take a moment with me and I want you to think again, not just the ministry here of Christ Central, but the ministry that God has laid on your, in your life, in your own heart. As a mom or a dad, your ministry is to one another, to your children, to students who are in grad school and college. Your environment is your witness place. The lives that God has crossed into your path, he said, be a light, be a salt to them. And that your giftings are to be used to edify the church and to glorify his name, all as we enjoy his presence and his grace. Would you thank him for the ministry, this humble boasting ministry of our weakness and Christ's strength? Would you take a moment in prayer and then I'll pray for us. Lord Jesus, we wanna thank you for redeeming us and saving us by the only way that we could ever have been saved. And now that we are saved, we don't want to just simply lay back, but we want to follow hard after you. You've given us the opportunity to stand in your name, to speak boldly about the truths of the gospel, to do so unashamedly, even though we are weak jars of clay. May our weakness not hold us back. And may your strength and your gospel lunge us forward by faith and by grace. May you allow Christ Central to be a church that impacts its community with the gospel and with this truth everlasting. And may we also raise up a generation that doesn't walk away from Christ or doesn't understand the value of worshiping God regularly but to follow after you and to lead our family, our children, to be true disciples of Jesus Christ. And this I pray in Jesus' name.